Hi, and welcome to Zernona Clayton, the podcast. I'm your host, broadcast journalist, and also a family friend, Michelle Miller. And we'll hear from Miss Clayton, or as I like to call her, Biggie. Big or the queen of the town. She is an incredible, wonderful, brilliant woman who for the last 93 years has been an activist, a civil rights visionary, and a broadcast media pioneer. Oh, what a life she's led. The Atlanta that you moved to, what year was it you moved to Atlanta? Oh, I'm the worst person in the world with dates. It was in the 1960s. Oh, well, it had to, I can tell you it'd be 62, 62, because we were getting ready for the march on Washington. So you moved to Atlanta in 1962. You've watched Atlanta move at light speed. Well, let me tell you first, people act as if I were born here because they call me for directions. Like, (laughs) where is so-and-so street? Because when I first came, people used building names as an address, like, let's say I'm looking for some place. I'm supposed to meet somebody at the Haverty Building. Well, where in the world is the Haverty? Who is Haverty? <laughs> you know, I was unpacking boxes. Coretta was helping me unpack, you know, moving in. And I realized that, oh, gee, I think I made a mistake. Let me put this stuff back in the boxes. <laughs> I'm going back home to Los Angeles. You know, there was a time when women could buy clothes from Richards, which was the best department store here, but they couldn't try them on. You mean black women? Yeah, black women. And you could spend your money in Macy's. They had lovely food counters, but you couldn't eat there. Just whole, all the kind of rules that we n- knew about the South, but I had not experienced that. And so to run into it daily was very annoying for me, not cleaning the streets and just leaving the black community untouched, you know, bothered me a lot. But fortunately, I've uh, had um, people who kind of helped me get over the hurdle of disappointment. So I had a birthday party for Coretta uh, one year and invited the people I now had formed as my circle of friends. They had never met Coretta and they liked her. Martin came over to my house to pick her up, and they got a chance to meet him, and oh, boy. Now, the man they read about every day who lives right here, they'd never met him. Um, and now I helped to introduce Martin Luther King to them, and now they know Martin. And so I helped merge a lot. Well, I, I'm not taking credit for all this, but I was responsible in many ways of bringing people together because I knew them from a sorority I belonged to or church uh, activities. I was very active in church. I met you at the church convention or I went to this, you know, sorority or whatever, or college, because I went to a Southern school. So right here was a feeding point also for the university I went to. So I had more friends than I realized, and that became apparent. But, you know, falling into work, I mean, you don't have time to measure anything. You, you're here now. You might as well make the most of it. And I did. Uh, I moved here. The problems I tried to attack, you know, I did. The ones well had to wait, waited. Uh, I was happy here. And I've been happy here for all these years. 
so Atlanta, so we pretty much, you know, was segregated in the 60s. But when, when there was an instrumental change uh, that came with the election of the city's first black mayor, Maynard Jackson, were you a part of it? What was it like to be certainly in in the know, in the epicenter, to be around the people who did make that happen? Well, keep in mind, though, that every job I've had only had three. They were related to nonprofit organizations, and you can't actively participate Campaign. in politics. So right away, I couldn't be a politician. Not that I wanted to be, but I just wasn't. But I knew everybody in town, and my job was to, to tap the people who were doing something. You read, you know, I'm a voracious reader, and so the black press would always tell me who's doing what, then I learned to meet this one through the newspaper and then that. And then because I was new, I got a, the, the city opened up to me. I mean, they invited me to parties and they invited me to everything that was going on. I was a part of everything that happened in Atlanta. When Maynard came in, this man made a speech when he won that said, from this day forward, I'm now the mayor, I'm running the city. If you work in this city, you gotta live in this city. So it means that if you didn't want to live here, you better get a job someplace else, you know? And he made that work. He was, uh, you know, he's big enough to sort of like, who's going to buck him? You know, <laughs> he could whip everybody and come before him. Uh, but he, he ruled this city. And so he was serious about everybody having an opportunity to participate in the wealth of the city. So when they had big jobs, which the airport was one of the biggest we've ever had, they saw they had to have minority participation. It was a requirement. I mean, when you forced to hire a black person, you got no choice, you know. And so the people moved here from Yazoo City and all points north, south, east, and west. So we brought in a lot of people because that mayor down there in Atlanta is serious. You want a job? We got some because we just fired 10 people because they don't live here. He made the city work for the people who are living here and paying the taxes here. He proved his point without a doubt. So he made a lot of black millionaires and then those millionaires contributed back to the city and that's why we got now, you know, places of, of education and well, what a city needs. You know, he believed in pouring the money back also and everybody gets a piece of the pie. Yeah. I want to talk about some of those allies that you point out, because to get to a black mayor in a city that just five years before, 10 years before, was segregated, that's an accomplishment. That's quite a feat. You knew some of those allies personally. I mean, people who just had a different point of view, but who had very prominent jobs in key positions, journalists business people? Who, who are some of the people you would credit with oh, well, opening you know, eyes? The, the list is long, but what I could tell you is that the commitment was here. Like, people wanted to help each other. You have to remember that this was an educated community as well, but they all, these schools here helped it produce a lot of educated people. So, so these schools, meaning the HBCUs? Uh, yes, yes. Spelman, Morehouse, 
Clark. Then you have Emory, you have Georgia, University of Georgia. Yeah, well, but we can't count them early on because we didn't have Emory and, you know, the white schools as much as the black schools were turning them out every year. People who had smarts, who could contribute to the city. But what I found interesting is that the post office was filled with black PhDs. I thought that was the oddest thing in the world, that people come out of school with a PhD and couldn't find a job um, in a field that maybe they had been trained in. Because of segregation, segregation was, was stifling the growth of this city. Everybody knew that. But what do you really do? Well, start tearing down public housing. Public housing here was like filth neighborhoods. Those were black neighborhoods. Because they wouldn't, the government that was responsible yeah, for right. that wouldn't I mean, fix Well, if it happened clean. then. And then you had barriers where black people couldn't go. You get car insurance, whatever insurance you need. It's twice because your address is a black neighborhood. So black people were paying double for what white people were getting for half the price. So when you expose all of that, you, you get ashamed. Somebody does. But then we had learned people, skilled people, who were just taking a job trying to not get their families fed. So PhDs with you know, college degrees of the high order are working in the post office. And when Maynard helped to open up the city so they could get out and then have access to some of what else was available here in the city. You talk about the, the, the journalist that was your friend that kind of helped. Oh, you're talking about Ralph McGill. Yes, Ralph yeah. McGill. Ralph McGill, of course, was a white person who was internationally known. I had read everything about him. I learned to like him before I ever moved here. And then I found out he's based here in Atlanta. Oh, that's a man I want to meet, you know, because I just loved him. And... The NAACP asked me to be chair of their dinner. And I said, well, do white people go to the NAACP? Oh, no. Mm-mm. No. You know, <laughs> by then I had become, you know. I, the integrator I got in reverse. Some, yeah, I got some white friends now who, my friends, my real friends. So I, I said, put this date on your calendar because you're going to the NAACP dinner. Then I went down to our local newspaper where Mr. McGill was stationed. But I really went there to meet the editor of the newspaper because I was always fighting an issue and I wanted to know his name was Eugene Patterson. I'll never forget him. And um, so I said, Mr. Patterson, I'm chairing the dinner this year and um, I'd like for you and your wife to come. And so your friends, but I'm, I'm coming now to present you two tickets compliments of the organization, because I want you and your wife to come. And then you can buy tickets for your friends, but I want a table from you for the dinner. And he laughed, and he'd never been invited, never been. He, didn't, he knew about it, but never went. And so now he said, oh, Miss Clayton, now we become a friend because I stayed much longer. I just went there to present him the tickets and got a picture for him because I want him to run it in the paper that he's white and he's going to be at the dinner and maybe you ought to come too, you know. So that was my strategy. But as I was leaving, I saw a sign that said Ralph McGill. 
I said, is he around here somewhere? He said, oh, his office is right here. They shared the office. The editor was over here, and Ralph McGill was over there in the same office. Oh, I have to meet Mr. McGill. He said, oh, I'll introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're kidding. How lucky can I be? And he took me in to meet him, and I said, oh, Mr. McGill, I've never really fallen, ever fallen on my face from meeting anybody, but I'm about to fall on my face. I just think you're the wisest, the smartest, the most <laughs> giving man. Oh, and then he fell out. He said, oh, nobody's ever said that about me. Oh. And he had invited me to lunch, you know, in, in the future and so forth. That first lunch, we stayed for two hours. And it became like when we go to lunch, it was a two-hour event. But he became my protectorate, my supporter, my everything. And when I was trying to integrate Southwest Atlanta, I needed white speakers to come and share their experience and to see the black people who have nice homes, the yards are well-kept. People used to think that black people all parked their cars on the grass. You, you want a tour? Let me tour you around the black community. And I want you to count the cars who are on the grass. Not one. Nice, clean yards. And then when we had meetings, and these were intelligent people. And I said, and you, editor of the newspaper, missing maybe a lot of subscribers because these people are readers and knowledgeable as well. So maybe this is a good merger. So I opened their eyes as well. But everything I did, I ran it by Mr. McGill. You, you said he made a call about some students coming across the bridge. What was that oh, story? Mr. McGill just seemed to have been knowledgeable about every racial issue. And the mayor called him one day, and I happened to have been visiting Mr. McGill that particular day. <clears throat> Which mayor? Mayor <clears throat> Ivan Allen, who was a good guy. Uh, he did the best he could. He was from a rich family, and he had to cater to the rich white people of Atlanta. And so trying to do that and um, be kind to the black community, a lot of times he would get out and walk the streets. That's all I'll say about him. He was good. Could have been better, but he was good. So I happened to have been in Ralph McGill's office that day when the mayor called him and said, I hope uh, these students don't tear up the city. we got to figure out a way to solve the problems and keep our city intact. And he said, I hope maybe they'll get tired. And Mr. McGill said, well, Mr. Mayor, I don't think they're going to get tired <laughs> too soon. He said, because here they come now. He said, they're coming across the bridge now. As you speak, they are coming. And that was the day they tore up riches and let the people know they were serious. We want in, and we want respect. And that was the day things changed in Atlanta. There was somebody else. A lot of people point to your relationship with Dr. King, but you also had a close friendship with John Lewis, who was working in the movement. How did that form? And you were very close to his wife as well. You introduced he and his wife. Well, John Lewis was one of those many committed students. You know, the student movement started like in Fisk University here in Greensboro. You know, there were pockets 
where students were taking leadership. And that was so admirable because, you know, kids had hard time. You know, you can yank their money. So there were risks that they took. And so everybody everywhere ought to give an unending vote of confidence and compliments to the students who put their lives on the line. John Lewis happened to have been one of those students. He went to Fisk University in Nashville, and they had a big movement there. But he tells, used to tell the story that he's from Alabama. And the story he remembers to tell is that he said, I need to go downtown shopping. I need some new pants. His mother would always say to him before he walked out, don't get in trouble now, don't get in trouble. What she meant is don't try drinking out of the water fountains. You can't drink the water if you're thirsty on a hot day. And Alabama is one of the places where you can get pretty hot. He never could understand why that was a big problem. But his mother always said to him as he walked out the door, don't get in trouble. He just lived his life with his mother's memory. Don't get in trouble. And that's why, to fast forward today, he said there's a difference between bad trouble and good trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so now when you walk around Atlanta, you see on the sidewalks, I mean, on the side of the building, good trouble. And so he's quoted a lot. So I knew John. I knew all the civil rights people at the time. You kind of become a family, so everybody knows everybody. But John was one of the ones who was not married, didn't have a girlfriend. Some of these guys would have three and four girlfriends. John didn't have any. But he didn't seem to care. He was really committed to the cause. I think he was just born to the cause. I used to laugh because he never smiled. I mean, he walked around like either angry or confused. Most of the time, he just walked there with, <laughs> with no look on his face to tell you anything about him. But I liked him. And that's how our friendship formed because everybody came through our doors at SCLC where Martin Luther King is. But I would invite him to things when I have parties, I would invite him. So he and I became friends that way because I oh, he seemed so sad <laughs> to Poor myself. John. I never told him that. Poor but John. we became very close. And then Lillian Lewis, Lillian lived in Los Angeles, so we had a Los Angeles connection, but she came here to work at the university here. And she was a very smart girl. I mean, she read everything. I'm a pretty broad reader, but Lillian read everything. Magazines I never heard of. All the magazines. Lillian, where did you get that information? And I was fascinated by her knowledge. But the unique thing about her that everybody thought was unprecedented is that she loved Martin Luther King. And she knew from memory every speech he's ever made. Really? And so people told him, there's a woman in Los Angeles who can quote all your speeches. So um, she now had come to Atlanta to work at the university. And we both had an appointment with Martin Luther King that same day. So he was flattered. Martin Luther King was flattered that Lillian knew all of his speeches. And one time he kind of threw a little test. He said... You remember that speech I made in Detroit when I said, you know, all men are queer equal. I'm just giving an example. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, that wasn't Detroit. That was Rochester, New York. What? And he learned to appreciate the fact that she did, in fact, know 
everything he had said and done. She must have had a phonographic memory. Or she did. She did. Uh-huh. Because she remembered lots of things, but nothing as dramatic as that. For someone to know all these words and where, the location. Right. And he would love to test her. And he said, uh, Lillian, uh, you remember, was it so Was that Birmingham? Uh, was it Los Angeles where I made this speech about it? She said it was neither. It was Bismarck, <laughs> and he said, what? And so he loved it, and he would fall out like That gave him more pleasure. Uh, I said, because you're a braggart, that's your problem. You're self-centered. That's your <laughs> so I used to tease her. She, she's the smartest person in the world. She ain't the only one who's smart. And I said, oh, she ain't that smart, yeah. But she and I became close, 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 because we had this love for Martin Luther King that was equal. And she'd gone to Europe, and she spoke three languages. And, I mean, she was very interesting. But I found her not just because she was smart, but she was enthralling because you spend a girlfriend, you don't want to talk about boys all day, you don't want to talk about the weather. Lillian had that kind of knowledge. You can pick a subject, and she's prepared to talk about it. So that's how our friendship grew, grew, grew. But she was down to earth. She wasn't cocky. About being smart. And every time people say, you know, that girl is smart. Thank you. But I finally decided that she had all these boys were after her because she was smart and energetic and going to school in London and all that kind of stuff. So she'd have boyfriends who would call her for dates, but there were too many all crud. And I said, There were two what? Oh, just the word crud. Crud? Uh, yeah. Not much to him, you know, all front, no back. <laughs> and, I, and I was one picking up boyfriends for her, so I, you know, I read. People say, I'm always running somebody's life. You should know that better than anybody else. <laughs> I tried to run yours as long as I could. Uh, but she was my little replacement, you know. We went every place together. Uh, and she was bold, um, and she would just tell you, no, I, I, I don't particularly like that dress. So now I'm thinking, well, Lillian's bold enough, but, you know, maybe this will work on somebody who's got some smarts. But, you know, these does it. She's like, it. I don't like them. So John Lewis, I like John Lewis. And I invited the two of them for dinner and measured all that I wanted it to, to be. Like maybe if just three of us. I usually had big parties. But now it's just the three of us. And... No, talk to John, talk to Lee, and maybe they'll find something. Now, she knew who he was. I mean, he wasn't a stranger. But that began a relationship that you start looking at her differently. Then she got cold feet when I said, you two need to get married, you know. And um, then I helped set the wedding. Then I helped plan the wedding. And then uh, she didn't want the wedding. And I made it happen anyway. It, <laughs> so she didn't know how to buck me. So, But I did everything because I really felt like there was marriage. Now, John was just getting into politics about that time. And she hated politics. And I said, oh, gee, what am I going to do now? And I said, well, Lillian, you know, once you're looking toward marriage and a future, Sometimes, you know, people have to cross over. You know, husbands have to do what wives want and wives, vice versa. So this won't kill you, but pretend like you're interested. Be his partner. She ended up being the best partner 
and I really almost lost Lillian because I was never able to get her. She was busy, busy, busy helping John run for whatever he's running for. And she spoke with impeccable clarity, nice choice of words. And John was a thick... Well, Southern Alabama. Yeah, well... Accent. I'm trying... You said that I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but John was well-liked because he just had a heart that you just felt when you met him. This man is committed to fighting the dragons of predators. John wants the world to be a better place. John really thought he could help make the world a better place. People called me and said, Miss Clayton, we know you are friendly with um, John Lewis and Lillian. And we have had a meeting last night, and we want you to do us a favor. And I said, well, who is we? He said, we, the community. Said, John Lewis is running for public office, and maybe she should ask his wife to run because his speech is not that clear. And I said, well, you're right. They are my friends. I'm going to do something I never do. I have a private number, and I have a public number. And I don't give people's private numbers out. But I want you to take that message and locate him. Tell him that they don't like, they're embarrassed by his speech. And maybe he ought to let his wife run. You tell him. Now, to fast forward this, as you know, John Lewis won every election that he ran for. And once he ran, those same people, I look at him and kind of, wink at the wall. Here you are asking for something from Congress of the city or wherever he was representing. The man became a powerhouse because I think everybody in a very short time will find out this is a sincere man. He's a dedicated man, courageous man. But we understand what he's saying. You know, you hear him and maybe not, maybe ain't, but it should be something else. But you understand what he's saying. And I think this dissipated over time that people found out the true John Lewis was inside of him. He was committed, committed. He was honest. He was decent. And need I say any more about John Lewis because his record speaks for itself. The people in Atlanta and around the country won't let that man die. You know, he's what is that, dead and gone? He's dead, but he's not gone. You know, he will remember, and people name the children after him now, uh, a great soul, a great soul. I'm trying to, like, get a taste of, like, what it was like to be in an influential position as you were, knowing others in influential powerhouse positions. What did that mean? What were you able to make of that? Well, keep in mind, though, I really wasn't, one of those, you know, sweethearts that everybody liked, but I was the one that Martin Luther King told everybody, let's let Zerona do this because she can do everything. So I wasn't, you know, the charming, wonderful woman that they couldn't do without. I was the one who would get it done, get it done. So I was a go-to, get-it-done person. Everybody knew, if I give you my word, I'm going to do it. That was sort of like my mantra. I was interested in what happens to my city. I live here now. And what happens affects me too. 
And so I'm going to get involved. I'm going to go to a meeting to find out what they're talking about so I can be knowledgeable about what happens to my city because I live here. So it was more, I think it was more personal than anything else. I want to know what's going on. And if I don't get my answer today, I'll call you on the phone to ask you directly, what did you mean by that? And people found out I was a reliable source. I was looking for jobs with some wayward boys who were standing on the corner committing crimes. And these people would meet on the streets, about eight or ten of them, every Monday morning, every Monday morning. And they were disturbing the neighborhood because they knew they were wrongdoers. And people were complaining about them. And I just said, well, why are people complaining about them? When I saw them, they just stayed on the corner. So one day I went there to find out what are they doing on the corner. Mm-hmm. I found out they were planning the strategy for crime. Today we're going to steal the checks out of the mailboxes because this is the first of the month. So today is check day. The next day would be get the teacher day. I mean, they had agendas. And they said, and we'll take this blade and we'll get our results. I'd never seen a switchblade before. Boy, that's the longest knife I've ever seen. Now, here I am, big burly men standing on the corner every morning. They quietly meeting, having their business meeting. <laughs> and here I come. I, I used to wear white gloves every day. Somebody said, oh, girl, don't go down there with no white gloves. Uh-uh, I'm not... That's what I wear. And I said, why, why do y'all do this? They told me stories that uh, I'm black and I've tried to get a job and nobody would hire me. And story after story went back to jobs. I've been to jail, so I can't get a job. I'm a wrongdoer. But I just said, well, it looks like to me, instead of planning crime for the day, Maybe I could use that energy to work for the day and get a check. Because their philosophy was this, that I'll do anything so my child doesn't have to do this. I have a boy, I have a girl, I got three kids. They want to eat every day. So I'll find sources to feed them and clothe them and educate them so they can have a better life. But now I got a record, so nobody's going to hire me now. Anyway, so I ain't even look no more for a job. So they would tell me story after story after story. And I said, oh, well, if I found you a job, would you take it? And they said, yeah, but ain't nobody going to hire me. And I said, but if I found you a job, would you do it? Yeah, I don't like standing on the corner. So I said, the commissioner of labor has control of all the jobs in this whole state of Georgia. So he's probably got an answer for me. I called him, made an appointment to see him. And I told him the story. And they said, no Bible hire him. He said, well, I'll find him a job. I said, that's why I'm here, to ask you if you could help find him a job. And he said... Yeah, we'll just get their names, and I'll see what we can do. I went back and said, guess what? I got somebody, the guy who controls all the jobs in the state of Georgia. And he asked me to bring your name. So what's your name? He said, my name is Two-Gun Pete. 
Oh, I mean, your, your real name. <laughs> and then they had malt liquor. I mean, their names were malt liquor, two gun pieces. <laughs> and I said, no, wait a minute. I I can't I can't do this. You gotta give me a real name. Can we name you right now? Will you how about James? Well that's it. <laughs> you know, I'll try to give him the name. And it was the funniest thing. When I went, I said, Well now listen, I I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm gonna work on getting the real names, but someone of them named Ball Liquor. <laughs> oh, with hesitation, she said, okay, well, I'll meet them. And I said, I've already told them you will meet with them. They said to me to tell you that if you want to meet them, you have to come to their office. I said, your office? <laughs> <laughs> Where's your office? And you got offices? It's the mailbox. Said, no, right here, this is malt liquor stores right there. And that's what we meet every day. We And I'm supposed to tell him that you're going to meet him <laughs> At Malt Liquor Store, the man is head of the state. You're kidding. I got that man to come out of his ivory tower suite to come to the liquor store. And he hired five of them right then. He said, I'm going to give five of you jobs tomorrow. I want you to show up and I want you to see to it that tell the people who you work for, who you are, because I'm going to tell them. And the minute you miss a day, you're out. And I want you to be the example for these other five. I mean, these others. I cleaned up the corners. Like that. Just like that. Thank you for joining us for our special podcast series with the incomparable Zernona Clayton. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Big... We hope you'll come back next time for more insider stories and reflections from one of the first ladies of the civil rights movement. Subscribing makes it easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. And please, please be sure to rate and review us to help others find the show. This has been Zernona Clayton, the podcast, a production of Boom Integrated and DA Brand Activation Group. Our podcast is executive produced by Naima Rashad, Dennis Adamovich, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai, with post-production by Boom. I'm Michelle Miller, your host. Thanks so much for listening. And don't miss the documentary. Sonona Clayton, A Life in Black and White. Available anytime on Brown Sugar, Bounce TV's subscription video on demand service. Download the Brown Sugar app today on your phone, PC, or smart TV. Go to brownsugar.com for more information.